Welcome back to the God Story podcast, exploring the big story of the Bible to bring us back to the gospel. And today I'm joined once again by Rido, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, and our very special guest, all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, the home of country music, Holly Catterton Allen, Professor of Family Studies and Christian Ministries at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. Holly's areas of interest are children's spirituality and intergenerational issues, and she leads two national conferences, Intergenerate and the Children's Spirituality Summit. She has a new book out from InterVarsity Press, IVP in America, and it's called Forming Resilient Children, the Role of Spiritual Formation for Healthy Development. Holly writes about how we as parents and as a church can draw our children into God's story and about how we are all part of God's story, which is the theme of this podcast. So Holly, welcome from Nashville. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. It's lovely to have you with us. Now, how are we and our children part of God's story? Well, I think God is in the business of calling people everywhere into his story. Um, I didn't know that as a child, and it's been wonderful as an adult to begin to see that he's calling us. Uh, As a children's minister, I wanted children to know the information about God and all the stories but I didn't do a very good job of helping them understand the whole story. Not only that he called Abraham and that he called Isaac and that he called Jacob, but that he's calling me, he's calling you, he's calling children. And it's been wonderful to change my understanding. And as I teach children, help them see that he's also calling them into his story as well. How can a sense of story help children in their recovery from trauma, for example? Well, there are several aspects of that. Um, Knowing God is the most important piece. Uh, When children have a deep sense that there is a God who knows them, knows them by name, knows their story, uh, is calling them into his story, is accompanying them on the journey, is a God who can affect change, is a God who is in the business of restoring and healing, Uh, that God knowing that God can surely be the most important resilience armor a child can have. It's so powerful. Knowing that uh, you're one of God's children. I have this button. You won't be able to see it, but you are a child of God. This idea that everyone, to every child, you're a child of God. That's their primary identity. And when a child sees themselves as that, that most important identity as child of God, that can sustain a child, even if some of the other protective factors that we'll probably talk about aren't present in that child's life. Can reading books and stories for children form resilience? I do think so. Uh, Usually when I do these podcasts, one of the first questions is how can parents nurture their children spiritually and encourage resilience? And I, now number one answer is reading children's books. And they say, well, you know, we do that all the time. But there's a piece of it that I think really uh, fits well here. And when you read any children's book to a child, it doesn't have to be a God book or a Jesus book. It can be or a Bible story book. It can be any story. And at the end, say, um, who are you in this story? And uh, at first, children might not quite get that. But most children, even as young as two, are able to say who they are in the story. And they will say, I am Piglet or I am Tigger. And then you can say, why are you Piglet or why are you Tigger or why are you Winnie the Pooh? You know, I like honey. That may be something as simple as it is. 
but often revealing who they are to you or uh, sometimes when they're three or four or five, they'll start asking, who are you in the story? And you can tell them that nurtures that child self and that child others relationship, which I think is part of the spiritual piece. And if you nurture children spiritually, knowing who they are, nurturing their relationship with others and their relationship with God, that can contribute resilience. So stories are just some of the best ways to nurture that child self and child others relationship. The, one of the favorite stories in the book is with my uh, granddaughter, I'm reading a story to her about Anansi, who is a, a trickster spider in Africa. It's one of those African folk tales that are, those tales are told all over Africa. There's a tricky spider. And in this one, um, the spider has been tricking the other animals in the jungle out of their food. And um, a little bush deer is watching what's going on. And eventually the little bush deer tricks the spider and gets all the food back to the animals uh, in the jungle. And at the end of that story, I usually ask children, you know, who are you in the story? Every child I've ever asked that question always says that the little bush deer, I guess, because, you know, they want to be the hero. But actually my granddaughter said, I'm the spider. Well, I wasn't surprised because I knew her pretty well. What I was surprised at is that she was willing to identify with the spider and tell me that she was the spider. That told me not only that she sees herself as a spider, but that she's a self-aware kid mm. and that she's aware of the things that are kind of, you know, a little off in herself. But later she, of course, asked me who I was. But another question I asked was anybody else? And she said, oh, I'm the little bush deer too. And I said, why are you the little bush deer? And she said, I like to spy on people. And again, she was aware of herself, aware that that was a thing. And she was willing to tell me. And that has established a wonderful relation, just that one reading. And we followed it with many books over the years, but that reading kind of established that she knows who she is and I know who she is. And we share this, I don't know, relationship that's very strong. She's grown now and we, we just have a really good relationship. So that's the child self and the child others piece that can be nurtured when you read a children's book. And that is a great spiritual piece, but it also is a resilience piece. I was always Eeyore. You were Eeyore. And everybody goes, yeah, we know you're Eeyore. I was going to ask that question. I was going to ask that question, Brent. Who who do you think you are in this story? Uh, And then, of course, my question should be, why do you think you're Eeyore? Uh, I always see that I'm a glass half empty man. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. What are some some of the other ways? We've talked about reading to children. And I'm going to ask you, before we finish, to recommend some uh, children's books because i know Rita will want a reading list we're gonna have a reading list but what are some of the other ways we can build more resilient children holly i think telling stories not just reading stories but telling stories of your childhood when you got in trouble uh and your child will want to know how did you get out or what happened when you lied uh and you can tell them more things about that time when you lied they may not always ask but you can say that was really hard because then my parents didn't trust me anymore you can say those things in those stories um telling stories of when you were a child telling stories when they were a child before they have memories uh the time when they were seriously ill and so many people came to pray around them or over them uh, that happened with our other one of our other grandchildren. And we have a little book that uh, a photographer came and took pictures of the family when he was nine months old. He had had a very serious illness when he was three months. And at the bottom of the page, it says the boy who lived. And so, you know, he was too young 
to remember that and say, this is, this is our testimony to a God who was present with you. You're the boy who lived. So telling that child's stories to them, even stories they might remember, but our retelling of those stories helps them cement those stories in their mind, how that they were precious to you, how God was present in their life. So stories about you, stories about them, stories about how God has been at work in your life or in their life. They need ordinary stories. We tell the Bible stories, and those are fabulous, absolutely, to tell those Bible stories. But that God is still at work today. He's at work in you. He's at work in me. Uh, And this is a story I remember when we could just nearly see the footprints of God. So telling those stories, I think, are really good, too. Being a capable parent is one way to nurture children spiritually. And what I mean by that is a parent who, when adversity comes or when stress comes or even trauma, that you carry the weight. Children need their parents to carry the weight. It is really hard on children when the parents is crying and say, I don't know what we're going to do. We're all going to die. That's really hard on children. And it models for them lack of trust. And so you're saying, I'm not sure what we're going to do, but we are going to pray. And we know God is with us here at this time. Um, Even if it's pretty traumatic and, and, and hard and scary, but witnessing in that way, telling those stories, even in the moment, we were traveling back from um, Africa through England, the United States uh, in uh, March of 1991. This was during the first Iraqi war. Uh, We had three young children with us, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, and then our older son, who was 13. And eight-year-old was just the right height to read all the newspaper headlines. And he was seeing in the London airport, he was saying, travelers warn, you know, warning to travelers, stay home. Uh, Travelers fear repressions. And he was reading this and thinking, oh. And so he looked at me with, you know, pretty anxious eyes and said, what will happen if they shoot us down? And, you know, I got down on his level and I said, it's very unlikely. Uh, The war is over in Iraq. We're in England. Uh, But he said, but what will happen if they do? And I looked at my husband. I looked at my older son. I looked at my little daughter. And then I looked right at Daniel, looked him in the eyes and said, then Daniel, we will all be ushered into the presence of God together. And he looked right at me very intensely. Then he looked at his dad and his sister and his brother and back at me. And then he said, okay. And then his shoulders relaxed, his whole body relaxed. He took out a little Lego thing he was working on, started playing with it. He was okay. Somehow telling, actually, that is the truth, of course. If they shoot us down, that is indeed what will happen. To assure him that's unlikely. Uh, But he didn't see me frantic or worried. Um, I was resting in that. That's what he needed to see. That's what he needed to see. So he needs a cape. They need capable parents, capable of carrying the weight, even in the ordinary things, you know, running out of gas or having a flat tire, saying, we will manage this. We will. We will call roadside assistance or we will call our insurance company or we will call a friend. This is what we'll do. And you could even say, what are some other things we could do? You can ask them, but not with the sense that, oh, I don't know what we'll do. You got any ideas? But rather to exhibit for them that you're calm, that you're present in this situation, and that you are resting. Other things that parents can do as far as being capable parents is to listen to their child, listen to their hopes, listen to their fears, don't dismiss them. 
And then that authoritative piece of being a parent, many people have heard of that. Uh, there are four types of parenting, the permissive, the uh, negligent, and the authoritarian. But then the authoritative parent is the one who has is nurturing, affectionate, loving, caring, but also sets boundaries, has guidelines, teaches guidelines, uh, has directives. Uh, so you have the both and, not the either or. The permissive parent is all love, all nurture, no guidelines. The negligent is neither one. And the authoritarian may be loving inside, but they don't show it. Lack of affection, lack of nurture, all rules, all guidelines, all structure, all do it this way and no explanations. But if they could, they can certainly have guidelines, but if they can say why, and if they also have that nurturing piece, that's the more balanced approach. Those are all things that contribute to a parent, contributing to a child's spirituality, but also to their resilience. Can I ask you both, Rito and Holly, uh, are today, because we should mention to the audience that Rito has five boys, so he no, and, and I, I have no children, so he's the expert, I'm not. But do you th both think that children today are less resilient than they were in the past? Uh, in my experience with just looking at, at kids who uh, my kids interact with, there seems to be a higher level of anxiety. I mean, my... my background is working with students on, on university campuses and everyone has been saying there has been a big shift particularly the lecturers are saying that there's been a big they've noticed a huge shift uh in terms of anxiety in students so particularly 18 19 year olds has been a huge shift uh, and they're having to spend a lot more time caring for students kind of particularly around anxiety particularly around getting assessments in and things like that uh, and they just have to be a lot more careful Around, around those things. So I don't know if that's if that's a resilience thing or not, but there's definitely a shift in the amount of anxiety uh, around in young people. Holly? We're seeing evidence of, of you know, more anxiety, uh, more depression, a lot of men mental uh, issues. I would say that the parents of uh, the children that today are parents who also have anxiety issues and have self-care issues or are unable to care in appropriate ways for their children, which leaves children hanging out there, uh, not having that, uh, that strong parent, capable parent around to not only model that, but also help, also to help the child carry what they must carry. This is due to many of the societal factors that we've seen that children are not surrounded as much by those protective factors. This book talks about multiple protective factors. Spirituality is one, capable parents, that would be one. Um, but other relationships, particular qualities like emotional regulation, agency, self-efficacy, self-motivation, those kinds of personal qualities, problem-solving abilities, good schools, good communities, all of these provide, as you can imagine, all are cushions around children to help them not have to carry the burdens of life on their own. And many of those things have not been working as well. Uh, and so those cushions are not there. Those buffering agents are not there as well. And I do think that contributes to children not having the support they need to build that resilience for when adverse things come or well, if they've dealt yeah. with adverse things. Yes. And, yeah. and this is where we come on to the subject of spirituality, because is the, is the lack of resilience perhaps due to a lack of spirituality? Uh, do children even feel free these days to talk about God 
or spiritual things? Or are they even encouraged to think about God and spiritual things? I don't know exactly in New Zealand what the laws are, but in the United States, uh, you know, we've separated church and school, uh, church and public. Uh, so we don't talk about religious things in school. Um, and people are very afraid to talk about anything spiritual in school because they think it necessarily means you're talking about a particular religion. So one of the things I did in this book was to uh, create a definition for, for spirituality that's not connected to a particular religion. And it can be used in any setting by Christians and by other believers in secular settings, uh, social workers, school teachers, counselors, this idea that uh, we are spiritual beings. Now, by the way, preschools acknowledge that children are spiritual beings and they leave a lot more room for that. Our public schools, our teachers have been afraid to put one big toe into that for fear that it'll you know, sound like religion. So if we can define spirituality more broadly, and my definition in the book is the capacity of children to have relationships with themselves, with others, and with God, or a transcendent other, the sacred, however the child understands that. Now, the Christians might want a more Christ-centered one uh, definition. I also offer one that's Trinitarian, and that's wonderful and works well in churches and in our Christian homes. But I wanted to be sure to have a definition that could be used in any setting. And since I've broadened it to not just the child's relationship with God, um, our schools can address that self piece. And they do, you know, understanding yourself that I am a me, I have feelings, I have needs that are legitimate. Those are okay to talk about in school. And of course, the child-others relationship, that's considered very important in schools to help um, nurture that relationship, good, safe honoring relationships with children and with adults. Um, so those are good, but they're also spiritual. And based on love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So that definition is tied. I, I tied it intentionally closely to that, uh, the first and second commandments. But I do think that that third piece that we really don't talk about, I don't know in New Zealand, I'll ask you in a minute, but uh, that we don't talk about the child's relationship with God in our schools it is all right for children to talk about it. Teachers just can't promote it. But children don't know that. And they pick up very early. Oh, that's church language. This is school language. And researchers say this. Uh, David uh, Hay and Rebecca and I did research in England in uh, the 1990s. And they said children six years old are very aware of the social taboo of talking about anything about God or anything spiritual. And I, I believe that's true in the after-school programs that I work in here with my at Lipscomb with my students. They we pair them up with one child, and that we do spiritual things for ten weeks. It takes most of those children, who by the way now the after-school program we're in right now is in a Christian school. It takes them three or four weeks to really feel that it's safe to talk about all those things, because they they can talk about like Bible stories, but this whole relational part with God is it's taboo. And so it takes them about three weeks. And I, I encourage my students to give their children that they work with time for that. I wanted to ask you about New Zealand. What are the laws there? Rito, I'll bring, I'll, yeah, I'll get, I'll get Rito to deal with this because he, he teaches. Rito. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, we, we, we have had what's called Bible in schools. And so there's time set aside each week in all schools for if if any religion can come in so there's a short short space each week any religion can come in and teach 
uh, and uh, parents are allowed to that kind of it's an opt-in kind of thing they can do that that that's slowly being uh, moved away uh, out of schools and for various reasons one of, one of the big things was that you're not allowed to evangelize in in those kind of things but in Australia New Zealand that that's slowly kind of being moved out particular particularly uh, some people who are very kind of against it thinking it's kind of indoctrination have said no we don't want that they've kind of towed that line of no there should be no spiritual talk uh, in schools one of the interesting things in New Zealand is that part of the educational um, uh, kind of idea is that human beings are made up of four four walls so it's, it's this idea called uh, fire tapafa where so we are kind of we have four aspects of us so emotional beings uh, community uh, physical but then also spiritual and so it's not for it's not it's not foreign to the kind of educational kind of kind of landscape but whether it happens or not in schools is kind of uh, a different thing but if it was anything christian it's it's definitely pushed aside as kind of colonial uh, as mm-hmm. you know kind of yeah it, it's even though there is kind of quite a lot of Maori spirituality, particularly and a lot of strong kind of Christian Maori spirituality as well, uh, a lot of that gets, has been pushed to the side and pushed to the, oh, that was the white people thing kind of a few, you know, a few generations ago and, and we can't kind of go there. Holly, if I, I can ask you, we're talking about spirituality. How then does maturing spirituality in children promote resilience? Almost all of the resilience factors or protective factors that resilience scholars talk about, almost all of them are very relational. As someone said, relationships are at the heart of resilience. And so as you promote a child's relationship with him or herself and with others, by definition, then you are connecting with all of those, uh, almost all of those resilience factors. Identity is one of them that a lot of people name, trust, a sense of belonging. It's hard to trust unless you're in relationship with others. That's a, a key piece of that. Having identity, you, you don't form your identity by yourself. You form it in your family, in your community, in your church, with your within your ethnicity. So that child others piece is at work there. So trust, hope, you learn to hope with other people. All these words are repeated in the resilience literature. You see it over and over and over. And almost all of them are connected, especially with that child others piece. So defining spirituality as the child self, child others, child God, that's a piece of it. So all those protective factors are deeply interrelated with that relational piece. So that's how I would connect it pretty directly. I wanted to ask you too, Holly, a question about COVID-19 and the pandemic and how the restrictions of COVID-19 have impacted children around the world. This has been a question a lot of people ask me. And one of the things I've been dwelling on is uh, Jerome Berriman's work on this. Jerome Berriman is the uh, person who brought uh, Montessori's understanding of, we we think of Montessori as, as not being religious, but originally her work was, and he eventually took her work and made it more accessible in lots of other places. And he does the godly play work. And he originally started his work on this as a chaplain in a pediatric hospital. And he said, children in pediatric hospitals are dealing with these existential issues. And I thought, I'm not sure I identify with that. And the four existential issues are fear of death, threat to freedom, aloneness, and making meaning, making meaning. And I thought, 
did I struggle with those as a child? I mean, I wasn't ill. Maybe it's only sick kids who struggle with fear of death, threat to freedom, aloneness, and making meaning. And then I've been thinking about COVID and our incoming freshman class last year. Fear of death, threat to freedom. I mean, talk about threat to freedom. Aloneness. I mean, they were alone on their computers doing their whole life and making meaning. What's this all about? Why is there a global pandemic? What does this mean for me? Why now? I thought all those children, I mean, elementary kids and high school kids were dealing with all of these existential issues. Now, preschoolers might not be precisely and certainly not with language, but you know their lives were shaken up by this. Uh, and still, so I have a two and a half year old grandson. He he has to wear a mask where he is right now. And that he didn't have to last year, but he does this year because he's over two. And so I don't know exactly what's going on in his head, but it's part of what's happening to him. So yes, I do think COVID-19 is having an effect on children. And of course, we already know, we've talked about this, the anxiety uh, that has been produced in young children, early childhood, middle childhood, older childhood, and then you know, young adults and emerging adults and adolescents, I would say at least one piece of this is parents not being anxious. If parents can say, we will do what we can to guard ourselves and those around us, we will protect ourselves, we will follow whatever the rules are uh, as best we can to protect ourselves and others around us, and then we will rest in this. If a parent can do that, then children might not be quite so anxious. Uh, but it has definitely affected a whole generation of kiddos. I'm There's going to be research out the kazoo on this, and uh, especially dealing with resilience. Why have some children come through this two years or whatever it'll be of COVID, uh, thriving, doing well, quite resilient, and other children have not? What are the differences? And this is how the resilience research began. They looked at populations of children and saying, why are these kids not doing very well? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And then somebody said, wait a minute, why don't we look at the kids in the same population who are actually doing well and see what the connective factors are there? Great question. And that's how they came up with these protective factors. So I do think um, we're going to find out more, but I would at least say for now, if those of us around our children can keep our levels of anxiety down and say, yes, it's all around us. Yes, we're doing what we can. Yes, we are dwelling in peace, resting in our Father. I think that will have a tremendously peaceful effect on our children. The question uh, about uh, intergenerational issues is important too, isn't it? And how do we, why is it important for children to mingle with generations? And I suppose part of the problems with COVID is that children haven't been able to, in severe lockdown, certainly in New Zealand, children haven't been able to mingle Uh with their grandparents, for example. Yes, a great loss. I'm in an intergenerational small group and we kept trying to meet outdoors and we did. And even just before Christmas last year in December, I realized it's warm there for you, but it's cold here for us. We were able to meet a few, uh, like a week or two before Christmas outside. And we had an intergenerational group and it was, we were so glad to be together. We have, I don't know, we had maybe 18 children there and maybe 20 adults, maybe not even 20, maybe 16 adults. And we're the only older 
younger people there. It's mostly young people, but it was so delightful. The children know each other well. They know the other adults. What a blessing for children to see their whole belief system being played out, not just in their family, but in multiple families. It is not possible very well now today to raise your children alone and be able to uh, hope they don't connect with anybody else, you know, and not be affected. You need a village of believers around you that uphold what you believe, what you say. Uh, that village will be those others around your children. They're going to have other children, other people around them for sure, but they need a village of believers who support not only their parents, but them and the other children do as well. So that intergenerational piece, that's that belonging piece. Belonging is another one of those resilience factors or protective factors that children need to belong. Maslow said that too. That's the third one on his list. We all need to belong to have a body of believers who receive you and welcome you is just one of the most healing things on the planet to be received and welcomed. And so that intergenerational piece is another rich part of uh, the, the protective pieces that can come around children. How can grandparents model the faith to their, I'm thinking particularly here of Christian uh, grandparents, but I suppose people of other faiths as well. How can they model their faith to their grandchildren? I think most grandparents really do want to pass on who they are to their uh, grandchildren. They really do. Uh, and actually, most grandparents living today want to model their faith. And uh, the work that I've done with children, children really see and they really know if you live it or not, or if it's just a pretend faith. Some of the things that they say most about grandparents is they really pray a lot or they pray for everybody or they're prayer warriors. They, When I say to children, I've done some research with children, who do you know who knows God? And almost all the children, if they have believing grandparents, will say, well, they really pray a lot. Of course, sometimes they say things like they send gifts or they send me a birthday card with money in it. They say those things too. Uh, but prayer has been one of the number one things. Um well, they tell me their stories. That's what they'll say sometimes too. And grandparents have really interesting stories from times when the electricity went out or when there was a huge storm. Of course, we can all have those stories, but some of those stories before there were cell phones, you know, and you could just call somebody up and get help. So they have stories of times they leaned into God. Those stories are terribly important for um, grandchildren here. Probably the great advantage that grandparents have over parents is that they're not responsible for the day-to-day living of the, of the kids. They don't have to provide everything. They don't have to train them all the time. So they have space. They have unhurried time to listen to their grandchildren. And some of the questions I've asked my own grandchildren that, you know, you think, well, maybe they don't understand, but my code word, and none of my four older grandchildren have ever asked me what I mean when I say, how are you in your spirit? And I started asking them that when they were like four. And astonishingly, not one of them has ever said, I don't know, what do you mean? Now they answer it differently. Sometimes they'll say, good, but I'm kind of sad today. Or they'll say, my brother hit me. Or, you know, they, could, they can go any direction they want. And I receive that. I don't say, well, that's not a spiritual thing. I'm not asking that. I'm saying, how are you on the inside? Uh, so you can ask those questions that parents might uh, that children might think their parents are probing if they ask, but a grandparent can ask. And I think grandparents can spoil. And, you know, some people say, well, that's probably not a good idea. But you think of spoiling as giving someone better than they deserve. 
I mean, God's in that business all the time. That's kind of grace, you know, and maybe parents can't do it all day, every day, but I think grandparents can give some of that, giving better than they deserve. I mean, children really feel cherished by their grandparents. It's like, I don't know. They just, they treat me like I'm so special. It's almost embarrassing. I mean, I love it and everything, but you know, if I'm around other kids, it's almost embarrassing, but I really love it. They need that sense that they are deeply cherished. I think grandparents can love in a way that children can interpret as God's love in a way that, uh, because parents are also responsible for so much, they might not see it at first in their parents. So I, I think grandparents can play a huge role in the spiritual development of their children and ultimately in their resilience. We've just about run out of time, sadly. It's been been great chatting to you. Uh, but can, before you go, uh, can you recommend us some good children's books, please? Rito, are you oh my goodness. pencil there? Yeah. Oh, I have three or four that are kind of my top ones that I really love because they lend themselves to who are you in the story. I like A Splendid Friend Indeed. And this is one of those um, bear and goose stories by Suzanne Bloom. And it's, it's a very annoying uh, goose and a very reticent bear. And it's so lovely for your child to see themselves as either the bear or the goose. And then you can say, and who's the goose in your life? Or is there a goose in your life? And then they can talk about that really annoying kid. Or if they're the goose, um, are there some people around that they really like who are kind of quiet and reticent? It's lovely for self-revealing and uh, for the child to consider who they are and who usually the other siblings in their family are. That's A Splendid Friend Indeed by Suzanne Bloom. Uh, Tommy DePaolo's uh, Grandma Upstairs, Grandma Downstairs. This is, he loses his grandmother, his great-grandmother, and then his grandmother. And it's not morbid or anything, but it's a lovely book to read before grandparents start to die. Uh, it's fine also when grandparents die, but the sweet relationship he has with them and the way he expresses that. But uh, children... When they lose any any one, a, a friend or maybe a grandparent or a pet, they can identify with, who are you in the story? We've read this to children and they haven't lost a grandparent, but they'll say, well, my grandma's in a wheelchair and I help her. So they, they connect to that part of the story. Or my grandma still lives in, in Congo. We, we ran away, but we couldn't take them and I don't ever get to see them. So they, they make connections and it's, it's really quite lovely. The Runaway Bunny. Oh, the runaway bunny. that's an excellent one. The runaway bunny. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't remember who wrote that, but she's famous. So I should know this. This is embarrassing. The runaway bunny. And, you know, every child loves it. But have you ever said, I wonder why the runaway bunny ran away? Mm. And, of course, the book says nothing about why. Oh, okay. But when we say, what? Yes, it doesn't tell you why the bunny ran away. No. So that child, when he tells you or she tells you why that bunny ran away, you can bet something. It's going to tell you something about that child. They'll say, maybe he's got a brother he doesn't like, you know, or something like that. You know, you go, "Uh aha. And and it's very revealing. Um, And that's what we're talking about, relating with your child. How can a book help you know your child better? How can they know you better so that you're nurturing that relationship? I mean, your five boys, they would have all different reasons why that bunny ran away. And when they get a little bit older, they might say really important things like maybe they don't feel loved or maybe they think they're not the favorite. Do you want to respond to that? Yeah, that's, 
Well, they'd probably say all of those things. <laughs> and it's, and their, their response would probably be different on different days as well, which is helpful, you know, just in terms of I'm just sure. hearing what's going on in their little lives mm-hmm. and how to how to love them best you kind of and foster them through those difficult things. Yeah. It's really a sweet, sweet book. Those are some that I think are really good because they elicit this. But um, in the book, we have, I talk about maybe eight books within the chapter that I recommend and illustrate how to do that, how to connect with your child. And then I've asked four, I think it's four, yes, four of my friends who uh, really love children's literature to give me their best recommendations for nurturing children spiritually and perhaps leaning toward resilience. And they've given me their top eight or 10 and they're listed. So, and then they, they've also given a little blurb. So you're not like, you know, this list of 40 books and you're going, oh, I don't know anything about them. Uh, but they've given a little blurb to say what they're about. And you will find three or four books that just sing to you. And um, those are the ones that you'll know that you need to get. We must close the interview. But when I, when I was a boy, it was, it was Dr. Seuss in my day and it was The Cat in the Hat. Okay. And if anyone can tell me what The Cat in the Hat's about... I binged it to know. I, I reread it recently and I saw it from a completely different angle. I think when you're a child, you're just delighting in all the chaos that he's creating, something that you want to do if your parents would ever let you do it. But um, there we go. He makes me anxious. <laughs> I read the camera. Me too. Something to be said about that little boy and girl there. They're, they're kind of interesting characters. And you they, say, who are. are you in the book? If they're the cat, what if they're the little boy or the little girl? You know, what do you want to do with that? So that would be interesting to see what they're, you're right. They're just fun books. A lot of books are just fun, fun, fun. And mostly we read them for fun. But, oh, they're just wonderful for building there's relationships. A, there's a lot going on in, in the cat and the hat, I think, that I haven't thought about. But anyway, thanks so much. Uh, I'm the fish. Oh, you're, oh, you're the fish in the fishbowl. He's juggling. <laughs> yes. I, I think I think that, I think it's brilliant. Anyway, uh, Holly Canston-Allen, Professor of Family Studies and Christian Ministries at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. And her book from IVP America is called Forming Resilient Children, The Role of Spiritual Formation for Healthy Development. And Holly and Rito, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It was a delight to be here. Thanks for asking me. That's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Same as Brent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Godstory Podcast.